As you take your seats, please turn with me in your Bible to Galatians chapter 5. It's found on page 140, or sorry, uh, found on page 974 of the Black, Black Pew Bible there in front of you. Galatians 5. Um, the bulletin says verses 1 through 15. In reality, we'll get through verses 1 through 6 this evening. Uh, the title, as it has in the bulletin, is not correct either. The, the title for this sermon would perhaps be something better like Freedom or Slavery. It very much follows up, of course, in the context of what we studied this morning. As Paul sets together the, the binary of the, the thought clouds, we might say, of Hagar and Ishmael and the Jerusalem below, in contrast to Sarah and Isaac and the freedom offered in the Jerusalem above and by grace through faith and the good news of the gospel. So that Paul here is coming to this point in his, his letter where he's preaching. He's driving them to decision, and in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, he's pressing them yet further, pursuing them even as the Holy Spirit pursues us through this Word. So, Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Chapter 5 and verse 1 really is, in so many ways, an exhilarating high point. Him putting things Really, a kind of summary of Christianity in one line, as far as he can put it. And of course, in the context, he has in mind freedom from the law as a ladder, works righteousness. But really, I think in putting it as he does, he's touching on larger themes that come throughout the Bible. And so I would like to at least begin to tease out the way that this passage helps us to have clarity on what the Bible says really about slavery and freedom throughout the whole of the Bible. We're going to ask some questions. There'll be three questions to help us work through our text this evening. The first question is, do you know you are enslaved apart from Christ? That is his assumption. He touches on briefly, and we'll ask that question. Do you know it, the way that you are enslaved apart from Christ? Secondly, do you know you can be deceived that you are actually in Christ? that you can be deceived that you are in Christ? And thirdly, do you know how to truly be free? Do you know how to know you are in Christ? 
First question, do you know you're enslaved? Second question, do you know you can be deceived? And thirdly, how do we make sure, how do we know we can, that we are truly set free, truly in Christ? There's nothing more important, perhaps, than to have a full understanding of what Paul's talking about when he touches on slavery and freedom in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. So the first question I ask you, are, are you aware, do you know that apart from Christ, you're enslaved? He says it, chapter 5, verse 1, he says, for freedom Christ has set us free, stand firm, therefore do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul's original hearers were all converts. They were all coming either out of paganism or Judaism. Uh, there had not been a whole yet another generation born into the church. They're not like us, where many of us have grown up in the church, never known a day apart from the grace of God. Uh, perhaps have generations going back of faithful Christian believers. No, this first century Galatian congregations, they're all new believers. So they would be able to remember the enslavement they had known. Not only as Paul has been speaking about it of as to a law, as a way of justification, surely that. But I think also this touches on a, the larger theme. So our, our, our first point is, is really a leap off this first verse in chapter 5 to the, the meta-narrative. We'll come back to the micro-narrative, to the way of slavery to the law as he's, as he's speaking about it in context. But there is a sense in which the whole Christian religion is summarized here in verse 1. Dr. Philip Ryken, president of Wheaton College and one of the helpful commentators on this passage, he points out that there are at least three ways in which everyone outside of Christ is enslaved. It struck with me all week, and I, I can't not help us see it together. It says, first, those outside of Christ are enslaved by sin. Secondly, they're enslaved by the devil. And thirdly, they're enslaved by death. All of our family members apart from Christ, all of our neighbors, all our friends, co-workers, teammates, Apart from Christ, the human condition after the fall is enslavement to sin, the devil, and death. We'll take each of those briefly in our first point. This enslavement to sin, we ought to see, is one of the fundamental claims of the Scriptures. It's, it's an ex- essential explanation to the way Christians see the world, how a good God could make a good world, a good creation with very good people, and how there could still be so much evil and suffering that surrounds us. It's a, it's a presupposition of Paul here. It's a presupposition of us so often. That in Genesis 3, the temptation of Adam and Eve, and they're fallen to sin. You know, nothing else in the rest of the book, nothing else in the rest of the Bible makes sense unless we have this assumption that there is something that happens there when they reach for the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As they knowingly disobey God's one command He's given them, that the curse of death comes on them. And the, the curse it doesn't stop with a simple physical death, but it, it permeates not only the world around them, but the world inside them, the inner life. There is, in fact, an enslavement to sin. G.K. Chesterton famously says that original sin is the only doctrine that's been empirically validated by human history. That is, it's the, it's the one doctrine that you can know simply by experience throughout every age of history and all life. 
when brain cancer ravages a child, or when we turn on the news and we see a, a child bring guns to school and shoot other children in the school, the, the soul cries out for explanation. And the explanation the Bible gives on the, on the meta-narrative is that humanity, Adam and Eve, and even the most seemingly innocent among us, in the heart of everyone, is an enslavement to sin. And perhaps you're saying in your mind, well, no, 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 I, I have the power to not sin. Well, the tradition of the Reformed Church would say, no, actually, um, your doctrine is too shallow. They would say that before, in the time of Adam, there's a movement from an ability to not sin to an, uh, a not-ability to, to not sin, from passe peccari, an ability to sin, or passe non peccari, ability not to sin, to non passe non peccari, not able not to sin. Okay, well, yeah, well, well, I'm not sinning right now. How about that? Well, perhaps you're not actively sinning in your body or even by your words, but passively in your mind, your will, your heart, your desires. Every desire brooding inside you is pure, righteous, for the glory of God and for the love of your neighbor. No, no, it is indeed a testable, empirically verifiable fact. Go one day, one hour, one minute without not only pure words and deeds, but pure thoughts and desires. That is the standard. Jesus throws down the gauntlet in His Sermon on the Mount. If you even look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. The heart level. There's an enslavement that goes deep into us. Such is the power, the nature and power of reigning sin outside of Christ. That even in our doing good, even though I think I'm actively doing righteousness, as in our passage, circumcision, something that's according to the law, something God commands, Paul is pointing out it's actual immorality because of the inward workings of the heart and the reasons for it. There's a depth, you see, to our sin and our enslavement to it. First, not only enslaved to sin, but second, enslaved to the devil. The Bible, from beginning to end, posits two unseen spiritual, mystical powers, two kingdoms, two rivals, uh, certainly not coequal, not any kind of yin or yang, of course. And our, our own entertainment civilization is fascinated with paranormal activity of one sense or another. No doubt some of that all is farcical. But nonetheless, evil that is not simply abstract, but it is personified, that is anti-God, that is active in the world, takes a spiritual power to combat spiritual power. There is indeed an enslavement to sin and an enslavement to the devil, and of course, thirdly, uh, more broad enslavement to death. And perhaps this is the most obvious enslavement. The facts are in. One out of one die. Everyone you know and love, including yourself, will die, even with the greatest technology and medical care and blood transfusions and cryogenics and all the rest, all are owned by death. But for Jesus, this is what is behind, I think, Paul's push to them for freedom, for freedom from sin, from freedom from the devil. From freedom from death itself, Christ has come. That's the good news of the gospel. And he's going to specify it in this passage. It's, it's more narrower, his, his exact meaning. But 
This idea of freedom and slavery connects to the whole of what Christ has come to do in the story of the Bible. He breaks the power of reigning sin, sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. He speaks in listening to his voice. New life the dead receive. The mournful broken hearts rejoice. The humble poor believe. He removes hearts of stone, replaces them with hearts of flesh. He actually transforms our desires, our wayward desires within us. He saves us from the devil. The writer of Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 says that through death, he, Jesus, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus, you see, is, is Christus Victor, bringing freedom and not slavery. Of course, this freedom is not the freedom our neighbors long for, not the freedom enshrined in our own culture that is an autonomous freedom to do what I want to do, when I want to do, however I want to do it, as long as I don't hurt anybody else. No, it's a, it's a different kind of freedom, but it's a freedom that perhaps you don't know you need. Perhaps you never considered before just how enslaved you are in your heart, mind, body, and soul, and the freedom Christ offered. Paul says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Jesus says, John 8, 36, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. And that's our, our first brief point, uh, a pullback on the meta-narrative Scripture to see the, the, the background of Paul's push to freedom. Do you know that you are enslaved apart from Christ? Our second question, do you know you could be deceived that you are are in Christ. Even more particularly here, he's speaking to people who think they have been freed by Christ, but are being deceived, hoodwinked, into another yoke of slavery. When, when Bilbo and the dwarves are in Mirkwood Forest in The Hobbit, they are languishing there in the darkness of the wood, and they've finally gotten free from the, the huge spiders um, and they're pursuing these lights in the darkness of the wood and are hoping that they're finding freedom as they pursue it. But of course, in the end, they're only ever captured by the wood elves. And it's out of the fire and into the furnace. Things only get worse. It's as if um, uh, there was a slave on the Underground Railroad, and he's hoping to find freedom from his masters, only to come to a place that he thought would bring freedom and to find the bounty hunter there ready to capture him again. Such is the nature of the Judaizing Christians who believe that freedom in Christ can be found by keeping the ceremonial law, by submitting yet again to the yoke of slavery, to circumcision, to the way of Hagar and Ishmael, to the way of law as ladder to justify myself. This is what Paul has been arguing since chapter 3. That the law, if used as a means of justification, does not liberate but rather enslaves. And of course, this is again, as I mentioned this morning, counterintuitive. There is a deceptiveness here. It's our assumption in life. You want the teacher to like you, you do the well in the class, you turn in the homework. If you want the girl or boy to like you, you have to, you know, earn their affection or something. You want your boss, coach, professor to like you, you work hard in the class, you turn in a good day's work. It's slippery and it's deceptive. He, he, he warns them in verse 1, 
Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again. There is a, there is a natural flow of life, a, a natural way to end up in the law as ladder mentality, just hopping on it once again. And, and Paul, in this letter, again and again and again, and here, no less, in verses 2 through 4, presses in this reality. Look at verse 2 with me. It says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. That is, he who gives the greatest advantage, the most worthy, the most righteous, who has the greatest riches, has no riches, has no advantage for you if you take circumcision. And of course, circumcision here works as a kind of symbol, a tip of the iceberg of the rest of the whole system of works, Hagar, Ishmael, death, slavery to the law as ladder. We could, we could fill in this, this blank of circumcision with any other number of things that we would put forward as, as part of our resume before God. If you rely on your generosity, your financial giving, your niceness, kindness, being a compassionate person, rely on your good work ethic, your open-mindedness, you are falling into a kind of circumcision, a resume to offer unto God the works you can contribute to Christ's righteousness. Christ will be of no advantage to you. He's pressing them to a decision. There was an uh, interesting video you know, I saw on the internet this week, as, as we tend to do. Uh, the, the title on the video says, This is why children shouldn't be allowed to choose their gender. It was a, perhaps a five-year-old boy sitting at a desk, and uh, the man in front of him put two fat stacks of $100 bills on one side and two Oreos on the other side and asked the little boy which he'd rather have. And he took the Oreos, of course. And that's kind of a cute illustration of why children shouldn't be able to choose their gender, perhaps. But it's also the ridiculousness, the the setup here of of, of circumcision versus the riches and advocacy and advantage that's found in Christ. Such is the polarity Paul would have us to see. He explains further in verse 3. He says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Now, now why is he obligated to keep the whole law? Well, because the two systems are antithetical. They do not cooperate. It's as simple as this. The system of grace cannot be of grace if something you contribute counts. If your contribution is counted, it is no longer a gift by grace. It is a wage. It's something you've merited, earned. Let me tell you, we don't want our wages. The wages of sin is death. No, there is a a bifurcation of systems here. He explains further in verse 4, you are severed from Christ. You would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. This connects exactly to what Paul has been driving at this overall, overwhelming binary. It's either law or grace, faith or works, effort or promise, Hagar or Sarah, Ishmael or Isaac, flesh or spirit, slavery or freedom. The Christian can have no confusion. Paul is laying it again and again. He says, I testify again. I testify. I'll say it again. Why? Eternity stands in the balance. For you to be deceived or have clarity of whether you're in Christ or not. And it comes down to this. You know you're in Christ 
if you look to Christ for salvation and not to your own resume, if you can sing, nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling, it's a sign that you know where you stand in Christ. We might say that, well, you know, as some systems do that, well, it is 99.9% Christ. He comes to you all the way, and all you've got to do is contribute that 0.1%. Or perhaps the, the metaphor of the, the dark night on the stormy sea, and Christ is there, and He's on the ship, and He has the lifesaver, and He throws it out to you who's drowning in the water. All you have to do, He's come all the way off the shore. He's come all the way to you. All you have to do is throw your arm inside. Now, what is, what is the problem with that contribution, with our, our work there? Well, it becomes this thing, the thing that determines the difference between you and your neighbor who's not in Christ, who's not following Christ, it's something you've done, some insight you've had, some ingenuity, effort, choice on your part that sets you off. It no longer makes it of grace alone, but it makes it a whole system of works righteousness. This is why Paul says in verse 4, if you go by works, you are severed from Christ. And of course, that word severed in the context of circumcision uh, calls to mind all the, the Old Testament meaning and symbolism of circumcision. Circumcision is a sign that symbolized um, being set apart or cut off from the world. There's a holiness symbolized there. It's a further sign symbol of being uh, of the covenant uh, stipulations to be you know, set apart from the world, but also the covenant curses that one who doesn't keep covenant with God would be severed or cut off from God and His people, set into exile. And of course, all this symbolism is fulfilled in Christ who himself bore the sign of the curse in being severed or cut off even from the fellowship of God on the cross in a mystical way. Christ became the circumcision, the curse symbolized there so that we might receive the blessing. So the Galatian Christians and we ourselves can be easily deceived into thinking that, well, Christ does most of it. It's mostly all of grace, and I have my own contribution here. That is a slippery slope to a whole other system that severs us from Christ. No, the, the gospel uh, runs counter to our American proverb, God helps those who help themselves. No, actually, God only helps the helpless. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who have nothing to commend themselves spiritually, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Isaiah preaches the gospel in Isaiah 55, Come all who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Do you know you're enslaved apart from Christ? Do you know you can be deceived that you're in, in Christ if you think you can contribute something by the law? And thirdly and finally, do you know how to be truly free? to know that you're free in Christ. And Paul has sought to establish as, as clearly as possible that the answer to this question is not your religiosity, your performance, success, hard work, look at my body of work, my resume, etc. He, he sets up the opposition in verse 5a. Look there. Verse 5. says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For through the Spirit. 
That is, not through you, through the Spirit. That is, that the initiative starts with God the Holy Spirit, through the Spirit. That is, that what was accomplished by Christ is applied to you, not by you climbing the ladder and laying a hold of Christ's riches and applying them to yourself, by the Holy Spirit Himself coming to you, breathing new life in you, a work of regenerating grace by the sovereign monogistic movement of God the Spirit. Verse 5b, through the Spirit, by faith, in case he needs to say it yet again. And for clarity's sake, we might add, by faith alone. All the believer does is believe. That is his contribution. And even that contribution of his belief, we know, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, even that faith is but a gift, lest any man should boast. So how do we know we are in Christ? Well, supernaturally by the Spirit is a work on His part. It's not by our works, but by faith alone. Verse 5c, we ourselves eagerly wait. Supernaturally, passively, we wait for it. We receive it. And the question must be, you know, are you waiting for something? Are you longing for the hope of righteousness? We ought not let this confuse us. Um, there is a, a sense in which, of course, we already have the righteousness and we're not waiting for it. There isn't always in the promises of God an already and a not yet. Already in Christ we are justified. We stand in Him complete. And yet we await the not yet. We have eager hope and anticipation for the final revelation, for the final vindication, for the final judgment when things are, that are not seen are made visible for all to see. And the Greek word for hope here is often also rather confusing. It means something much closer to assurance rather than doubt. So that we could translate this more hopefully, helpfully perhaps. We eagerly wait for the assured righteousness. So, so how does one know one is truly in Christ? By looking to the hope, the assurance in Christ, waiting, receiving, not by working to earn His righteousness and not my own. So that when I'm asked, how do I know I'm in Him? You point to Him. You stand in Him complete, not based upon our doing. Paul explains further in verse 6a. He says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Neither good things nor bad things, law-keeping nor law-breaking, whether you've been the older brother or the prodigal, whether you've been Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. Well, so what does count? What helps to contribute to know where we stand before you? How do we, how do we come to know? Well, he, he gives us an explanation. But only faith, or faith alone, working through love. When we say faith alone, we have to clarify always, we do not mean a faith that is alone. We mean uh, not a, a dead faith, but a rather a, a living faith that produces fruit. So often the skeptics of this doctrine of justification by faith alone will throw out James 2, where James says we are not justified by faith alone. In our time together here, we don't have a time to do a full examination of that passage, but I would commend to you that what James and James 2 and Paul in the book of Galatians and Romans commends are the same thing. James is uh, demanding that you can't be saved by a dead faith. And Paul here is commending a living faith that works through love. And that really those things are the same thing. 
Any true saving faith is a faith that's working through love. The root of faith that's connected to Christ will inevitably, if true and connected to Christ, bring fruit that is proof of the root. But these things we must not confuse. The fruit or the root is not something we merit being connected to the root in. No, it is a necessary consequence of. How do you know? We might say that there is this internal knowledge, an internal desire. There is a faith that hopes. There is an external fruit also. There is good works, faith working through love that produces the fruit of the Spirit. Then what's not mentioned here, but certainly within the larger uh, vein of Scripture, is the, the third objective outside, the third party witness of the church to confirm in you by the signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper your standing in Christ. Do you know, apart from Christ, you are enslaved to sin, the devil, and death? Do you know you can be deceived into thinking your works merit something alongside Christ? Do you know how to be sure of being truly set free in Christ? And the difference this makes, why Paul is so after this, I think is illustrated well by Dr. John Piper in his sermon on this text. He, he had the illustration of of playing with his three young boys on the floor, setting up blocks and towers and knocking them down and making a game of it. And he said the difference between him telling his four or five-year-old boy, pick all the blocks up within two minutes or I'll spank you, versus, hey, let's pick up the blocks together. You pick up the red ones, I'll pick the blue ones. We'll have a game of it. See who goes first. Ready? Go. The difference of those two ways, the threat and the command versus the joint venture that becomes a kind of game, an endearing connection to your father, is the difference that's connected here in, in, in knowing the law as a slavery and the law as a freedom. A law that's kept by love for a father that is something you do with him and for him. It's a freedom that sets you free to uh, live a life of works and of mission that is not bitter for what you gave up to, to serve Christ. It's a difference that sets us free with a working through love. This is where Paul will take us. A Holy Spirit that is sent to bear the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. For a heavenly Father that loves us, we cry out to Him as Abba, Father. The law in this way of God, the Ten Commandments, the way of walking with Him becomes something we long to do out of our own love for Him and love for neighbor rather than something I'm trying to do to prove myself before God. That's the difference that will make you a believer who's never tired, that never tires of service before Christ. It'll make us a church, never tires of serving one another, but takes great joy in it as we serve the Lord, serving His glory and the good of our neighbor as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, help us to catch the vision of what Paul preaches to us, the implications of it, that we look not to the law as an enslaving ladder by which we must climb, but a gift that is enlivened, even a game with our Father that we might please Him and know Him and love Him, know the joy of His smiling face upon us. We thank You for the good news of the gospel that Christ sets us free of sin the devil and death. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.